Hello everyone and welcome back to season six of the Great Woman Artist podcast. In this series, I am so excited to be continuing my partnership with the brilliant Alighieri Jewelry, who have been supporting the GWA podcast for the last year and a half. Alighieri Jewelry is a brand that sits in the intersection between literature, art and fashion. Female founder Rosh Matani draws inspiration from the legendary Italian poet Dante Alighieri. As Italy marks the 700th anniversary of the poet's death, it seems like a good time to tell you more about who he was. Dante Alighieri ultimately was a man living in exile from his homeland in Florence. His story is a universal one that we can all understand. A story of being lost and afraid, trying to find his way through the dark wood of the inferno. Alighieri's modern heirlooms are fragments of the imperfection, celebrating these moments of vulnerability. Each piece is rooted in an emotion, designed to travel with you and bring you strength on your own adventures. Follow the brand as they take you through Dante's journey and make sure you take advantage of your exclusive discount with the code TGWA at checkout. Visit www.alighieri.co.uk for more. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is the writer, fashion critic and art curator, Charlie Porter. A visiting lecturer in fashion at the University of Westminster, Charlie is one of the leading cultural commentators of our time and has been described as one of the most influential fashion journalists of his generation, with many of his garments now in the collection of the V&A. He has contributed to titles such as the Financial Times, The Guardian, New York Times, GQ, Luncheon, ID, Fantastic Man, has judged the Turner Prize in previous years and curated critically acclaimed exhibitions, including a show titled Palimpsest at Lismore Castle in County Waterford in Ireland, which featured the likes of Martin Sims, Charlotte Proger, Lynette Yadon-Boetche, Nicole Eisenman and many more. Born in the UK, the child of artists, Charlie studied for a BA in philosophy at King's College London. He initially intended to study for a fashion journalism MA at Central St Martins in the mid-1990s, but switched to becoming a researcher for the Daily Express. But the reason why we are speaking with Charlie today is because he has recently brought out one of my favourite books of this year, What Artists Were, an incredibly fascinating book that chronicles the lives and careers of artists through their clothes and how they have worn, incorporated, used, recycled, referenced and drawn from garments from the early 20th century to the present day. 
From chapters dedicated to Louise Bourgeois and Martin Sims, an in-depth look at the history of the suit, think Frida Kahlo to George O'Keefe, a focus on the subject of workwear with the likes of Agnes Martin and Barbara Hepworth, and how they dressed for the studio, what casual means today, how artists have won jeans, how they integrate clothing for performance or made wearable art to those who use garments as their chosen medium or for acts of transformation. It is an unmissable book for any art lover. Charlie Porter, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing Oh my today? God, thank you so much. That was so gorgeous. That was amazing. It's funny because we're sat here in this little studio in Somerset House and King's College is right by us yes. where I did do philosophy, but I didn't spend any time doing it. I spent the whole time doing student journalism. Thank you so much. That was so gorgeous. It's so, and it's so great to be here. And, and yeah, thank you for asking me. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and so many congratulations. In this episode, which will work slightly different from normal, we will focus on four artists mentioned in the book, Louise Bourgeois, Anne Truitt, Sarah Lucas and Martin Sims. But before we delve into these artists, I would love to speak more generally about this fascinating topic because this book, for me, provided such a rich, fascinating insight into artists and their work, mostly for the reason that it offered an alternative viewpoint. Never has something made me think so deeply about how artists presented themselves, but also how clothing has been used in art in so many different ways, circumstances, and for so many different reasons. So I'd love to just start off by asking you, Charlie, what attracts you to what artists were? So the beginning of the book was like just this tiny little piece that I wrote in the FT in 2015. And it was when there was the Agnes Martin show at Tate Modern and Barbara Hepworth at Tate Britain. and. The Barbara Hepworth show had a Margaret Howe little collaboration in the shop. And then the Agnes Martin show, I just remember looking at the catalogue and there was this photo in it of Agnes that was taken by Alexander Lieberman and she's in her studio and she's wearing this quilted jacket and quilted trousers. And they just struck me as so modern and so out of the time she was wearing them. But yet to her, I'm sure they were just utilitarian like insulation, like things to keep warm in that freezing <laughs> studio down in Quentin Slip. Yes. And, and it, it really took her out of her time and brought her to my time and brought me to her time. And so I wrote this little thing about it. And then that set off a path of the, the book becoming the book. But I went back to read the piece the other week and the book is in those 300 words. Almost like a synopsis. Yeah. And, and, and there's just so much. As soon as you start unpacking it, there's so much to look at. And... There are so many ways that you can use clothing to kind of shed fresh light on artists. But then there's this other thing as well, which is that if you speak to most artists about their work, and if you said like the kind of dreaded question they get at parties of like, oh, what's your art about? <laughs> and like, if you've ever been with an artist when they're asked that question, or a writer as well, but like artists in particular, that they just kind of go... Uh, 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 because they don't know often. They often yeah, how do you explain t- being on this earth? How can, exactly, how, <laughs> exactly, how can you explain your work? And, and, and often art is the stuff that you can't explain, and that's why you're making the art. You can't necessarily put it into words. But if you ask an artist about their clothing, or if you talk to a relative of an artist about their clothing, or a friend, if, if it's an artist who's no longer with us, it starts a kind of process of them talking about the way they live their life and they start talking about their daily practice and how they are in the studio but they also start talking about how they feel about themselves about the society around them about their place in the society around them about how maybe they feel that place should change how society needs to be broken in some way 
And you can actually learn so much about an artist by kind of coming in from the side. It's kind of amazing way to learn about an artist, as well as all this stuff about these amazing clothes that sometimes you're like, oh my God, that's just incredible what they're wearing. Amazing. But I think what I found so interesting about it is the fact it became so accessible and universal because it made me question what I was wearing. I also have to say as well, never have I ever had so many people come up to me when I've been holding that book in the street or on the bus or whatever. My local news agent took a picture of it ah! while I was getting some groceries. <laughs> the person at the vaccine centre did. Oh my and, God, amazing. And I think what's amazing is the fact that, you know, it creates this really universal way of looking at art, which is actually so rare. Right. And the fact that we can question what we're wearing and the artist, and it right. sort of situates ourselves with them Within as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But also I think that's kind of one of the many things that's happening with art anyway in the 21st century. When I was approaching the book and thinking about how to kind of frame it and who to include, I was always thinking about Tate Modern, right? And before pandemic, Tate Modern was like the most visited place in the UK. I'm not sure the exact figures, but I think it's like the most <laughs> visited tourist attraction or something like that. People go there and they don't just go there for the building. They really go there and they really go through those rooms and those rooms are hardcore. So there's something about being with contemporary art that really, really, really affects people and is with people. And I think that's kind of also what it is with the book. Like by humanizing artists, by talking about them through their clothing, by getting rid of this kind of language of like what they did or like how much the work is worth or all that yeah. sort of stuff that oh. puts artists away from it deifies people. Them yeah, it deifies them. By humanizing artists, it makes you then see them as yourself and then also totally makes you question your own clothing but also that's also then when I started looking at it actually often artists are using clothing to ask us to question clothing or what clothing says about society so actually it becomes a tool for artists mm. as well and there's something about the universality of clothing that means that artists like Sarah Lucas can use clothing as a kind of signifier in her work to really connect with an audience and really let them know what she's thinking. Yeah, absolutely. I think what else as well that I loved was what clothes can actually reveal about an artist's work. Like you talk about Agnes Martin, the way that she wears a quilted jacket, it's almost like a grid or something. Right. And like, yeah. I love that kind of synthesis with it. I love the fact that when you look at Hepworth, she wears this very tough, durable clothing and actually that really reflects her sculptures. Or Frida Kahlo, that fantastic image in the second chapter on Suits where she's like, I don't know, must be a teenager. And you just think, yes, already her wearing a suit is saying what she's about to say in her portraiture later right. on, which yes. was just like, I belong here. I don't care if right. this suit belongs to a man exactly. or it's meant to in society. I mean, what do you think clothes can reveal about artists? Oh, I mean, like so, so much. And the thing about the book is it's it's kind of framed through the 20th century into the 21st. Yeah. And it's this era in which art has completely changed because art is no longer painting sculpture mural whatever yeah. whatever whatever it was <laughs> up until the 20th century yeah. art can now be anything and clothing can be a material in art so clothing can really tell us everything it's a primary material now but also i think specifically as well like it was really important in the book to to try and break the canon not even try and break the canon break the canon yeah and and break this idea of of who gets to be an artist who gets to be recognized who gets to be in museums and, and we'll talk about this with Anne Truitt in a bit, yeah. and also with Louise Bourgeois and often that is gendered and, and often looking at the disparity as well between voting rights and, and looking yes. at how actually in, like so Frida Kahlo never had the right to vote 
and and what, when you think about that what that really says about her relationship with Diego and also her wearing suits and actually then thinking about artists in France and how it was such a male dominated society women didn't have the vote what they elite it was illegal to wear trousers it was illegal to wear trousers until like 2013 <laughs> or something i think so often this thing called the canon is is removed from how society is and actually one of the big aims of the book was to present a truer fairer idea of art that broke this um canon and also really looked at how women really had to struggle and fight to to be artists or have their work be seen throughout the 20th century yeah, absolutely. But also the politicalness of, well, of the suit. I mean, I love that you quote Georgia O'Keeffe in this letter to Eleanor Roosevelt right. that I had no idea that she said, you know, right. I would like each child to feel responsible for the country and that no door for any activity they may choose is closed on account of sex. Yeah, yeah. And like what that means. Yeah, it was so wonderful to find that letter and show this other side of O'Keeffe and yeah. her, like really fervent, staunch beliefs and then look at her wearing a suit throughout her life, like the, the, the suit on the cover of the book is on that she ordered that when she was 93. <laughs> I know, she, she was 93 when she ordered it. And this sense of, like, throughout her life, it was this fight for justice in a way that maybe also many of these artists aren't necessarily known for. But it was just present in her life. Yeah. I mean, I was also so struck by your chapter on performance as well. That was one of my favourites. And kind of using clothing as a way to transform identities. And especially, you made this fantastic sentence in the Cindy Sherman section. You said, garments are crucial to her art, but they are not the art itself. And I found this very powerful because it's almost like clothes come second in her work, but they are kind of never the noticeable thing. And when I look at Cindy Sherman, I never sort of look at the clothes, strangely. I look at her face and I look at the performance. And then you highlighted the fact that in her fairy tales, series which is just remarkable yeah. and haunting and abject and how she's wearing a gingham dress and it's yeah. like oh my god that sort of hauntingness is so familiar like all of us can wear gingham yeah and you're yeah. suddenly this kind of grotesque monster wearing gingham right right <laughs> and gingham is meant to be this thing of innocence and yeah. springtime and picnics and everything and yeah cindy uses clothing as these real signifiers in the work it's one of the big clues as to where you're meant to position that human who they are but yeah none of the clothes are ever exhibited like she uses them in the picture then they're gone but yet they're so completely beyond wildly famous like the image i have in the book from the when she did a shoot for a fashion magazine and she's wearing a jean-paul gautier suit dress with this insanely powerful shoulder and this long line but this kind of like blonde wig and this like furious hands and fists like the anger of it like and and the garment really tells you of this kind of like weird dichotomy of the glamour it's meant to be but then yeah. obviously like anger of this like, oh. but yeah the performance art chapter was a, a, a one I want to be really careful with because performance art can be so complex to talk about of course especially if you're not present and most people are never present with the work but also it was then yeah so much of the book I learned so much as I was writing it and it was that realisation that that performance art in the 60s and 70s was the space that often female artists went to because they weren't given spaces in galleries they weren't given exhibitions they had to create their own spaces so they created this new form that didn't have a language didn't have a name i guess also the use of street which is kind of free from patriarchy exactly exactly and it can be this place where female artists could really state their claim even if there was no audience there's not an audience for like years and years and years until suddenly in the 21st century, people see documentation of what they were doing. And like, oh my God, what were they doing? Like the radicalism yeah. of it and the wildness. And, and yeah, clothing is an absolute primary tool for the performance artist to tell the audience 
what they want to tell them. And also, you know, discovering that Yo Kusama owned a fashion boutique and had like fashion shows and everything and had these incredible dresses. You've got a picture on it, I think the rooftop, where she's actually got sort of cut out holes in the dress. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) And this super, super weirdly mundane but fantastical story of her doing a deal with this fashion company (laughs) and they start selling clothes and they sell clothes (laughs) and they they actually have a corner in Bloomingdale's and it's this big thing and then it's not. And it's this weird sort of like... Did it happen? But it happened. But again, with Kusama, it was that thing where yeah, she could find no space for herself in New York in the 1960s, whereas her contemporaries like Warhol, Oldenburg were, 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 being, were being given spaces, but, but she could not find a space. And, and so she did performance art until she left to go back to Japan. Yeah. But just before we get on to Louise Bourgeois, I also want to ask you about Lynn Hirschman Leeson, because she was new to me. Right, right. Yeah. So Lynn Hirschman Leeson's the most incredible artist and she's, she's still working. She's in her 70s and, and Lynn, one of the first works she did was in, in the 1970s. The work's called Roberta Brightmore and Roberta Brightmore existed. So it wasn't Lynn playing a role. Roberta Brightmore existed and Roberta had her own driving license, her own credit card. She went to therapy. She went on dates and it was a private performance. So no one knew she was doing it. Like Roberta existed. And it's the most extraordinary, radical, wild performance. It went on for five years. And Roberta always wore the same um, kind of trompe l'oeil dress, like a knit vest with a polka dot skirt that looks like they're separate, but it's actually a dress. And uh, she had a suede jacket until someone stole it. But the, but the point of it was to show the conditions in which women lived in American society in the 1970s. And there's this amazing work, which is the kind of makeup chart of Roberta. And it was about what women had to do to gain the acceptance of patriarchy while still attempting to have their own independence and individuality and never being able to marry the two. And eventually Roberta was exercised on the grave of Lucretia Bourgeois in 1978. (laughs) (laughs) It's the most incredible story. And and Lynn, to this day, continues to confound with her art. There's been a show at the New Museum in New York this summer that hopefully any human who gets to be in New York got to go and see. Sadly, we're barred from America still. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. But But I want to start with Louise Bourgeois because she's the first artist you talk about in the book after the introduction. I mean, why did you want to start with Louise Bourgeois? So Louise actually was the actual start. It was the first research I did. It was the first place I visited. It was the beginning of the book. The thing with Louise was that she lived a long life, like right through the 20th century into the 21st. So she totally experienced this whole century where clothing became part of art, but also women fought for and found more freedoms and also women experienced such kind of oppression and repression, especially within the art industry. And also Louise talked throughout her life about her emotional connection to her clothing. She experienced trauma in her childhood because her dad had an affair with the au pair. Yeah. And she carried around real grief and trauma throughout her life. And throughout her life, in her notes, she talked about this trauma, and I quote it a few times. This was in 1961, when she was 50. She wrote, like a Dumbo, I think I'm going to cry. My garments, and especially my undergarments, have always been a source of intolerable suffering because they hide an intolerable wound. So she found within clothing this, this this real strong emotion and she kept all her clothing. She did performances in the 70s where she made clothing. But then as she 
eventually found success because throughout her midlife, she was ignored in New York. I think it was only in the 1980s that she finally got proper yeah, recognition. Yeah, with, with the MoMA show. The MoMA show, I think, was 82. Yeah. So really, that's when she's 70. So she was ignored through her midlife. And then in the 80s and 90s, she starts to make the monumental work, which is the work that then makes her globally recognized. Then this thing happens in the mid-90s where she suddenly realizes that the clothes could become the work. And she ships all of her clothes from the house that she lived in in Chelsea in New York to a studio in Brooklyn. And she wrote in her notes, the shock came when the truck appeared and a 20-year preserved wardrobe actively left my sight. The cord was cut and I felt dizzy. The history of the wardrobe started. And so basically the clothes became a material in her work and for her it also meant that this emotional narrative in the clothing would continue after her death the meaning was there they they bore witness to her life they weren't just in a box somewhere and so she realized that the history of the wardrobe started by her using them as materials and the next year she made the first um, of the series of works called cell yeah which are these extraordinary room spaces there's normally like a perimeter of doors mm, or... That kind of metal fence around them. Right, yeah. And then you'd peer into it and there's kind of furniture or sculpture and then often these garments hanging. Yes. Like people present in the space. And, and so she found ways to use her clothing within the work. And also I had the complete total honour of being able to go and spend a couple of days researching the foundation and also visiting the house and... It just was the most remarkable thing. And they always say to me, please say the public can't visit the house. <laughs> the public can't visit the house. It's, it's a place only for research, but the, her house is completely preserved as it was when, when she died. Everything is just left exactly as it was. So you can go in and be with her stuff. And straight away in the basement, there's this spiral staircase that she had made. And there are these shelves with these kind of plastic boxes full of fabric and cross the space there's this metal rail and there's clothes on wire hangers and some of them are just kind of like humdrum clothes but then among them there was this kind of helmet lang knitted shawl but was padded so it's almost like wings but with two little straps i'd never seen any garment like it and you know i've i've, I've followed my helmet lang's work and i'd never seen that garment and it was just like is this it was extraordinary and and then you go upstairs to the ground floor and it's like a proper old new york apartments there was like the, no kitchen because i think new yorkers yeah but you know the significance out. of the, the hot plate so mm. i think it's so fascinating that your first line of the book essentially is louise bourgeois kept a rail of clothes opposite her gas stove because right. you know after her husband died she ripped out the kitchen right. and she replaced it with like hot plates essentially huh. so it was like this kind of freedom for her right right yeah so i found it so fascinating how that was oh, even just the first I line i never made that connection yeah because goldwater who was her husband yeah she, 1973 he, 1973 she very much was the wife yeah in polite society and you see that picture as well yeah. which i've never seen on page 18 if everyone's got the book open hopefully <laughs> she looks not like Louise. Not like Louise. And it's a Franz Klein exhibition opening and there's Rothko around her, I think. And so these artists are all around her and Louise has just stood there in the middle with this kind of polite smile of absolute, like, why? And at that point, she'd not had a solo show for seven years and she played the role of dutiful wife. And yeah, so when he died, it was a liberation, but I never knew that about the kitchen. Oh my God, yeah. What is a new kitchen? 
was this tiny little galley <laughs> run between two Because she's like, fuck rooms. being a housewife, I'm exactly, not going to cook for anyone exactly. anymore. Exactly, <laughs> and so she had these like, insane industrial-sized burners, and then opposite <laughs> them, these unbelievable garments, like by the kitchen, on wire hangers, which I loved, because it was, straight away it was this complete non-deification of garment. These yeah. are things to be worn, they're part of life, they're not like, oh, look at me, I've... Oh, look, I've got this special thing. I wear it once. It's like, <laughs> no, she wore this stuff. And, and one of the pieces there was the coat that she wore in the Robert Maplethorpe photo, but so it turned good. out it wasn't because it turns oh. out that she gave it to Gary Andiana and he shrunk it in the wash. <laughs> he shrunk his brush in the wash. There was a tuxedo coat that by Helmut Lahn. I was like, oh my God, this is beautiful. And I was looking at the labels. It was the sample label. So basically that means that it's the one that wasn't when it went into production. It's from when it was a catwalk show and it had written on the back, Stephanie 62. And I was like, oh my God. So I then went and looked at Helmut Lang shows and it was the exact same jacket that Stephanie Seymour had worn in a Helmut Lang show, Look 62. And Helmut must have given it to her as a gift afterwards and then also this incredible helmet lang sheepskin coat so louise when she's in her 90s she formed this huge friendship with with helmet lang who just moved to new york and they became completely inseparable friends and louise wore this radical fashion with total glee and it's this sense of like through her life clothing was this total burden and total lock but also because she was raised by tapestry restorers. Right, exactly, yeah. So, so almost, so, and especially her father, who she hated or who yeah. she loved and was obsessed by. Yeah, so the woven and material was And suddenly she was, was set everything. free. She was completely released and completely released in the most radical, wild way. So it's also like this story of, think of it didn't happen until she was in her 70s, yet everything that happened before her 70s was so important. And I think nowadays, because of how we are about social media and everyone thinking they know everything about everything as if stuff hasn't happened by your 30s, then it's not going to happen. Or if no one's paying attention, then it's like, no, the good stuff can happen. Like, the good stuff can happen in decades' time. Yes. Like, keep doing, keep going on. Like, keep doing what you're doing and keep caring. And, you know, it's so kind of instructive. And also, if things are hard, then keep going with what's hard. Keep on that nerve. Well, speaking of you know, people who were recognised much later in their life. Our second artist we're going to talk about is Anne Truitt. And she was working around a similar time. It's probably interesting to think that, I don't know if they would have crossed paths, maybe. Yeah, maybe. I'm not sure, because Anne was based in Washington. I'm sure they probably did. And actually, that's a, another interesting kind of side project I'd love to also do is look at Louise's friends because I know yes. you know that, that there's she, she was actually Who really artists involved the friends with, yeah exactly <laughs> I think she was actually really involved with the, with, with the artist community but but no Anne was working in the 60s 70s and 80s I think was the main time but Anne Truitt I, I love her work so for anyone who doesn't know, she makes these kind of large-scale minimalist sculptures. Right, yeah. And the thing is, most people won't know her work. Mm. And, 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 and again, this is another great example of this thing called the canon. And actually, like Anne Truitt's work doesn't really exist in any public institution in the UK. What? So you can't see... No, I mean, I, I googled as many as I could. Maybe one does somewhere that I don't know about. Well, but, it's like even Lee Krasner, only one exists in the UK institution. Yeah, exactly. So to break the canon, we can't break the canon without actually doing it ourselves because the works aren't there to be seen. And even in America, I only really discovered Anne Truitt by going to Deer Beacon, that extraordinary oh, place up yes. in upstate New York. Where Louise has a fantastic spider in the attic. Unbelievable spider in the <laughs> attic, yeah. And it's this foundation that gives space to really like hardcore work. And they have an old biscuit factory, like an hour and a half train ride, the most glorious train ride out of New York. So there's it's this huge, huge space that can give space to, to monumental work and they have Anne Truitt's work there and so I've been obsessed with it for 
a long while, but it's that thing where, yeah, people don't know it. And, and I spoke with Anne's daughter, Alexandra, who's, who's incredible. And throughout Anne's life, she was ignored. And we use her garments as a way to tell a story because she basically wore to paint this amazing quilted jacket. And it's like a little zip-up quilted jacket with a curved hem at the bottom. And I think I remember finding the first photo that I have of her, which is her stood between two of her works. And she's covered in paint, <laughs> absolutely plastered in paint. But yet she stood next to these forms that look like they've just dropped from an alien world that are absolutely untouched by human hand. They're pristine. Pristine. But yet she stood there covered in paint to show you what it took to make these things happen. That, you know, it was not pristine work. And it was so amazing to talk with Alexandra about her working practice. Yeah, because Alexandra was nine when the photo was taken that I used. And I asked her about it. And she said, everything was covered in paint. The clothes, the studio, the floor. She's talking about her mother. She would dip the paintbrush in the bowl. She would lift it up as it headed towards the sculpture. Drip, 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 drip. And then she'd hit the sculpture with paint and then paint over that again to smooth it down. So she is seen as minimalist but it's like wait the effort is so maximalist yeah and i think the assumption with minimalism is that it's like mm, i've done that i've done, not done anything <laughs> and that's it whereas actually the, the labor like the intensity of labor to make this thing which is to be as if it's not by human hand and what Truett was doing she, she made a breakthrough in 1961 where she realized that what she wanted to do was to bring color off the wall and and make colour in, in space, in three dimensions. So these sculptures are about colour. And she mixed her own pigment. And that was her life work. And she was completely ignored. Or not completely ignored, but like really not given any the respect she was due. So I, I feature in it, uh, in the book, a spread from an interview with her in American Vogue, 1968. And she's wearing the jacket again. So it's that amazing thing of you're having your photo taken by Snowden for American Vogue. And you're wearing a disgusting... <laughs> paint covered jacket yeah, but it's like, so incredible like, it's perfect. perfect so perfect but then like i was looking at it and I was like, there's a whole page picture of her then next to it is a whole page of text and it's written by a really famous critic called clement greenberg and i was reading it and i was like hang on a minute hang on a minute he literally does not mention her once all the way down the first page all he talks about are male artists or male run movements so all he talks about is minimal art pop art op art novelty are Anthony Carroll, Jasper John, Seven Smith, and he doesn't talk about her. And it's like, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? Let her speak. And it's this thing of she's being featured in Vogue, but she couldn't even get a word in Edgeways. Yeah. And it gives this sense of this oppressive kind of world in which female artists lived in, in American society, in the kind of post-war years, the 60s and 70s particularly. Alexandra still has the jacket, and it was so wild when her husband took photos of it for me. And... It's just this wild moment where then the, the jacket, you know, we, we have the jacket on the page and um, the jacket was actually made for active Americans, as in like it was meant to be a men's yeah. jacket. It was hard labor. Hard labor, exactly. And That's it was, exactly what she was doing. 40 exactly, coats of acrylic paint. Exactly. Like this hard labor to make the work. And so Alexandra, her daughter, said that you can't make the work my mother made without wearing some kind of comfortable clothing. You couldn't reach up to paint if you were wearing a lady's blouse. Yeah. It was necessary. It wasn't making a statement. She had to wear men's large or men's medium shirt because there were no women's clothes in the 1960s that she could wear. So literally she oh couldn't make God. her art if she yeah. was wearing what was considered 
women's clothing appropriate yeah. yeah in many ways that's still the case today these gendered assumptions of clothing and and what, what it's assumed that you wear and and actually is that limiting you what's the limitations to put on the situation in which you're wearing the clothes like what's the power of the man in the suit what's that doing to the room when they're there and that's allowed to happen why do we still allow it to happen that these gendered assumptions happen about clothing and and all these artists are kind of really asking us to to question that and actually to look at that in the way we go about our lives today because it, it, it you know it, it affected and true it then and it really shouldn't still be the case now yeah but also i just want to say as well before we move on to our next um, person is that there are so many fantastic moments in the book where actually you focus on paint splatter right. <laughs> and what i love about the paint splatter on the jackets or chantal joffy's birkenstocks right. or lee krasner's boots is the fact that it's almost like this palette of theirs that's been transferred onto right. these garments as yeah. well and these garments especially nicole eisenman yeah. it almost becomes the kind of palette of theirs yeah. onto their clothes yeah exactly and it's like you it's like you look at the clothes and you look at the work and yeah. you could see the work in yeah. the clothes almost. It's, all, it's like, so crazy how artists yeah. have such distinct palettes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But then we get to someone like Sarah Lucas and we get to her self-portrait with fried eggs from 1996 <sighs> and actually that kind of gendered clothing has gone out the window. Right. And so we've yeah. got to be making progress. Right, exactly. It was so exciting when Sarah agreed to email with me for the book. And also this was like a real revelation to me because I've been a journalist for like about 20 centuries. And the rule <laughs> of being a journalist is if you're offered an email interview, no. Because an email interview really? in journalism equals the PR's written it. Because it, you know, when you're a journalist, you I think it's assumed that what you want is the is the conversation there and then, and you get it that that. But actually, I found doing the book that emailing with an artist was like sending letters to each other, yeah. and it was this amazing kind of way of thinking things through. And I'd be I, I wrote a lot of the book in the British Library, and I was I was so happy that Sarah agreed because she really plays such a pivotal role in the story. She's a kind of tipping point in the book where I start talking with contemporary artists up until that point in the book it's mostly been um historical stuff and clothing has been such an important part of her work especially in the early years and it really was her using this clothing to kind of stand in for her and really transcend its meaning as an object to become art so it's this real thing of like what is it about an artist using a garment that makes it become more than a garment, yeah. makes it take on this other meaning. And that's either in like the portraits she did wearing the garments or then in these sculptures that she makes using garments. She, she made a series of portraits in the, in the 1990s and, and the most famous of which is called um, Self-Portrait with Fried Eggs. And so she, she sat there with her legs spread in a pair of jeans pulled up high or high-waisted and a crew neck t-shirt with brothel creepers on her feet and these two fried eggs at her chest. And, the, and she's got a leg spread and her arm out and, and there's a pack of cigarettes on the floor and an ashtray. Oh, God, I've never noticed the cigarettes. Yeah, and, and it really is this kind of real, like, statement of intent. Like, like really, like, yeah. Like, and I, and I was really thinking about it when I looked at it. It's like, you know, that assumption that it's, like, to be leg spread is masculine. Yeah. And it's like, wait, why is that masculine? What does that mean? And then actually the crew neck t-shirt, I researched into it and crew neck t-shirts were undergarments originally for American football players, i.e. men. And jeans, I do a whole chapter, you know, the beginning of the chapter on denim is about them being originally these kind of laborers clothes from mines and, and so worn by men and, and brothel creepers were from the army. So all these kind of gendered garments, all these kind of 
messages of alleged masculinity in these garments and she sat there with these two fried eggs on her chest like and like this real kind of statement of like and also kind of male belittlement as well yeah like, she's emasculating is, them as well yeah exactly and this taking is the what piss you out think the fact that, yeah yeah is this what you think is masculine you know and and it's extraordinarily powerful and and talking with sarah it, it made me realize that actually one of the reasons why it's so powerful is that we all understand what these clothes mean because they're so much a part of our visual language so we understand what it means when she uses a pair of dot martins in a sculpture that yes. she puts razor blades in their tip and this work was made before she'd ever had a solo show so it was a real thing of like aggression like you know this is what i want to do or the tights that then become the bunny sculptures these incredibly important works these kind of stuffed tights that form these characters and and it's because that we understand what these clothes mean we understand what she's talking about when she uses them like it's really direct so that then allows this transcendence to happen in the garments and allows us to see her in them see what she means and get the power of what she means but also making us feel like we are part of the work i mean you write in the language of her art and how clothes in the work stand in for me and actually yeah. the power of sarah lucas's work especially the bunny series is the fact that you feel like you're kind of in the sculpture and there's this kind of toughness but there's fragileness there's vulnerability but this kind of durableness yeah. and it's like she actually you know, uses clothes. I know what it feels like to hold a pair of tights. I know what it feels like to wear a pair of tights. And seeing them kind of outside of that, she makes you feel so much. Yeah, exactly. And also it's that time as well, I think, when these works were first made in the 90s, when it's that time of, of alleged freedoms, but is it freedom? Mm. And still do women have power over their bodies or are their bodies being exploited? You yeah. Know? And, and, and I think the garments in her work really are on that line especially the tights work because this this real thing of like okay you're going to look at me but am i letting you look at me yes it's like what's revealed but i love also how you also in a different section i think talk about Sengen Nengudi, who's one of my favorite right, artists right, right. and actually she uses tights in a completely different way yeah and she kind of stretches them and she, this whole kind of series of hers came about after she'd like had a child and the kind of elastication of the body as right, well and right. but not just the kind of physicalness of the body it's also the kind of psychology of the body and how you feel stretched or that kind of anxiety yeah. like actually using clothes i mean also just think about the history of the tights or history about textiles and women mm. using textiles for so many political reasons yeah. it's such a charged medium yeah. to actually use clothes coming yeah. back to what we're saying about louise bourgeois to use garments is so powerful and also how it is such a primary material yeah. that any any individual using it with true intent completely uses it as if they're the first person to use it because you don't think, oh, Sarah Lucas, oh, it's saying in goody. Like, they're, they're completely individual works. Totally. They're standing on their own. So it's as if you give a tube of paint to two different yeah, painters exactly. and they make their completely own work. So the, the garment is a pure primary material that's open to be at least kind of myriad, million different uses and interpretations. Totally. And they give off so many different things. But also, you know, like Sarah Lucas, who works across sculpture, installation, photography, and to an extent performance, Martin Sims, one of the most exciting artists of the today, uses video, installation, performance, digital media, all whilst including aspects of familiar technology that we know now as an internet-consumed age in our everyday lives, like text messaging and iPhone and videos. And I think what I found fascinating by your inclusion of Martin Sims is, like Sarah Lucas, we know what she looks like. She's a public person in a way. But also the different ways of using clothes in her work, whether it's installation or film or characters in a film. And, a, and her own sheer pleasure in the act of dress it. Yes. Like, I, I was so so thrilled 
to talk with Martina and to have the conversation. And a lot of contemporary artists that I spoke with, before I spoke with them, I was like, I wonder what they think about this. And then before I even asked, they started talking about it. I was like, oh my God, okay, oh my God, you think, okay, you're thinking about this too. Okay, let's talk about it. And Martine's brain is so incredible oh. on clothing and the messaging of clothing and the language of clothing. And branding and, and commercialization. And the politics, all these kind of layers of what clothing is in contemporary lives. And, and Martine also loves the daily act of dressing. And so she's from LA and she's, I love how she, she was talk- talking to you while she was driving. Yeah, it's, 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 I'm in the car wash. So the first thing she said was like, I'm in the car wash. Like, okay, amazing. <laughs> That's the first line of that chapter. But she said that, like, you know, she has a studio in L.A. She often just goes from home to the studio. No one sees her, but she still dresses up. You know, she still engages in the daily act of dressing for her own pleasure, which I, I find, like, so fascinating because I think so much about the language, of, the way clothing seen is about, oh, what dressing will do for someone else. And actually, for me, it's always about myself like i'm very much enjoying slightly lying back on this lovely <laughs> sofa but the I thing is, is that I could, charlie is wearing an incredible cardigan I'm re- but the thing is i'm really <laughs> enjoying seeing the cardigan like and I, and, and it's, it's got these flashes of pink and these black bits of and but it's on black so it's like really popping and like i i wear clothes because i like to see these colors in my visual field and i think it's something that's not talked about enough with clothing it's like when you look if I'm looking at you now, I'm looking at you, but actually also this lower part of my eye, I can see this, you know, it's like that thing you were saying about the colour palette, people's individual colour palettes, you know, my eye likes these colours, like your eye likes those colours, and so it's part of pleasing yourself, and Martine just talked about this this joy in the daily act of dressing, but also, yeah, she's 15 years younger than me, and it, it was so interesting to think about the difference in our upbringing, and she was talking about how Anyone can wear anything nowadays. Like so, when I was a kid, if you wore something, it meant you were part of that group. So yeah. you were a goth, or you were a this, or you were that. That's how you sent messages to each other. It was a messaging thing. But the thing is, now anyone can message each other any time of the day, anywhere they want, privately. Messaging happens now on phones. Like messaging is this whole kind of like cult within itself. So no one needs clothes to message anyway in the same way. So suddenly. The whole language goes all over the place. And, and and I think that's why often now more senior people get like myself <laughs> I get kind of flummoxed because they don't understand how these young people go, why are you not expressing what you say in your clothes? It's like, because we don't need to, we've got phones. So, <laughs> so, so Martina's from this generation where anyone can wear anything, but yet there's still this messaging going on. There's still this language of clothing and, it, and it's just in much more subtle, weird ways. And, and, it becomes part of this whole kind of like mass that's in her work of all these different forms and media. And she, she just got a show that um, opened in New York at her gallery, Bridget Donoghue, and she uses kind of clothing bags in it as well. So the actual act of buying clothes is part of these kind of um, tapestries that she makes by stitching them all together. And it's like for Martine, it's like it's another media. It's yeah. Another, it's, a, it's another media that she sees alongside of as internet, as messaging, as digital. It's it's a super advanced tool for her to use. Yeah, and I love the way also you talk about this sort of thing, idea of wearing a sort of thrasher skateboard top as well and people don't even know what it means and actually yeah. you've got these images of her just like chilling. Yeah. <laughs> I love them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just these selfies basically, but also she's got this branding on her and actually that also sort of speaks to the internet generation yeah. and sort of how we present ourselves through branding. Yeah. And also when you see an exhibition of hers, she incorporates text and that kind of billboard style in MoMA or something. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Pretty soon 
after we started a conversation, she'd said about, you know, the daily act of dressing. And I was like, and I said, oh, you, could you maybe over the next few weeks document it for me? And she was like, oh, my God, I'll send you a dump already. <laughs> Here they are. And sent me this Dropbox of like a bazillion images. Like, it was already part of our life. Yeah. You know, it was already, you know, that act of taking a photo of yourself, the pleasure of it. Like, yeah. it's there on a phone. You're wearing and, a great outfit. Take a picture. Exactly, yeah. And actually, but also the interesting with Martina is that she's not on social media. And actually, she's very wily in that way, I think, to not be on social media. Yep. So she can really, really concentrate on her work rather than do what everyone's doing on social media, which is wasting our time. Yeah. We should be <laughs> doing our work. So she completely understands this language, but she's not sucked in by it. It's like it, it really shows how she's like a real kind of commentator on it rather than someone who's in the depth of it. Like, ah, here's a picture of me. You know, it's. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I guess she does also appear in some of her films as well, also like kind of taken on an iPhone right? as well. Yeah. So you do kind of meet her, but also, you know, what I found as well is that so much of her work is about like surveillance, watching, being watched and remaining unseen, which also ties into kind of people, how people wear clothes, this idea of surveillance. You know, even if we're walking down the street, we're kind of being surveilled by other people and they're kind of judging us on our right. clothes as well. Right. I mean, you know, do we want to be watched? Do we want to be unseen? Right. Clothes can also make us disappear in a way. Right, exactly. But also this was another thing with the book when I started writing it I was really became aware of like how we are all experts in this language of clothing but the thing is if you say to anyone about clothing even if like they've been working in fashion for like 25 centuries like me they'll probably go like <laughs> oh no I don't I don't no I'm a mess they'll make some reason why what they're wearing is kind of or a bit embarrassing or you know they, or they've got no time for it yeah exactly well, I don't care about that Actually, we're all experts because we all, when we're walking down the street, can read each other. We can read everything. We all do it. And 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 I, I realised to write the book, I, I could speak to the expert in everyone. Totally. What do you think this book taught you about artists? Oh, the pleasure in spending time with artists and the pleasure in kind of spending time with artists in a way where we can just talk about stuff. So the conversations that I was able to have, the depth of the conversations the insight from those conversations. And it was also the thing of like, uh, I say at the end of the book, I wrote the book at the same time I was a judge on the Turner Prize. And the two together really were so extraordinary because if you do something like judge the Turner Prize, you have to be with the work. Like you have to spend time with the work. And I think before I did that, I was a bit guilty of being like, oh, there's a bit of video art. Let's look for a couple of minutes. Okay, I'm really anxious now. I'm going to leave the room. I don't know what to do. What's the next room? And, and, and you know, I, I had that kind of like time-based anxiety of what am I doing? Am I meant to be here? And I realized that to, to actually really do the job properly, I had to watch the work. And so it really broke my fear of spending time with art. And again, so writing a book, really allowed me to spend time with artists so it was this kind of double thing it really allowed me to relax into art and to really to i guess like this thing of humanizing artists to actually just like spend time with them rather than like have any kind of yeah this anxiety around it it brought me this like real deep deep pleasure totally and how do you think it shaped you and what you were you know what, like right, working in, I work, wrote it in Humanities 1. I very specifically chose Humanities <laughs> 1 humanities in the bridge. Okay, so that's upstairs from Humanities but 1. I'm actually now London Library. So, oh, yeah. the, this, I've, this I've hallowed ground. Oh my God, <laughs> I keep hearing about the hallowed ground of London Library. So Humanities 1, for anyone who doesn't know it, is the cruisiest, chattiest library. <laughs> now, obviously I'm a married man, so I'm not cruising anyone, but... 
I had I was up and down all day with reference because I I just got out a lot of books all day and I used to be in the in the library where it didn't matter so I was not going to be in rare books music where you feel really scared to get up it's like sorry I'm making a noise sorry so I did it in humanities one and I just loved dressing up but not anything because I had to be able to move and write and work it had to be a garments that I could work in and it did make me realize that actually whatever it is I'm wearing it has to kind of work for me so I'd never been into fashion that kind of didn't work that had arms cut badly but look good because I'm male I'm not forced into things like stilettos or corsets or anything that I don't think I would be able to it's not that there's not these presumptions yeah. of like or like societal expectations societal expectations or, or for men most trousers like sit on their hips we don't have to wear things on our bellies you know there's no kind of skirts for me it really taught me that like what I wear is has to be functional but also, I want, come on, I want to wear something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and can we expect a sequel? I, the, what I would like to do is very much the last paragraph of the book. Yes. Fantastic. I'll be, I'll be waiting. Charlie Porter, thank you so much for coming on. Just before you leave this rather uh, groovy studio, we always ask our guests if there was a female artist, dead or alive, who would you most like to meet and what would you say to them? But since you have asked Sarah Lucas and Martine Sims the questions you want to ask would there be anything that you would ask Louise Bourgeois and Anne Chouet? oh my god I would ask them if they want a cup of tea <laughs> yes. I would ask them if they want a cup of tea and if That's they didn't the want a cup answer. of tea they want a cup of, do you want a cup of coffee because they're Americans <laughs> they'd probably be like what is this tea what is this horrible drink you're trying to make me water drink water and milk actually no Louise because Louise was French actually wasn't she so she even more she'd be like oh British tea would be like no milk black no milk and probably not boiled <laughs> I would ask them if they want a cup of coffee and let's sit down and talk. Fantastic. Charlie Porter, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you, Katie. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening to the 71st episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the brilliant Charlie Porter on Louise Bourgeois and Truett, Sarah Lucas and Martine Sims. It was so fascinating hearing all about Charlie's take on artists and their clothes and I urge you all to buy his book, which I loved reading so much, published by the wonderful people at Penguin. As always, I have linked to everything in the show notes. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Nardus Smilelic and sound recorded by Amber Miller. And if you have been enjoying these episodes so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. 